Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You are listening to the TLS. This is Big Unfriendly Giant. Roald Dahl's Life of Plane Crashes, Bunk-Ups, Secret Agenting, and Children's Riding by Sam Leith from the issue of August 19, 2022. Sam Leith is literary editor of The Spectator. His most recent book is Right to the Point, How to Be Clear, Correct, and Persuasive on the Page, published in 2017. Roald Dahl's story has been told before most notably and in greater detail by Jeremy Truglown in Roald Dahl, a biography published in 1994, and Donald Sturrock in Storyteller, The Life of Roald Dahl, published in 2010. Dahl himself contributed a brace of unreliable memoirs in Boy, Tales of Childhood, published in 1984, and Going Solo, published in 1986. There's not much in Matthew Dennison's book that you won't find in either of those previous biographies, but that is not to dismiss the volume at hand. Here, rather, is a crisply done and well-judged survey of the outline of the life. Light on close reading of the fiction, discriminating, if to my mind, sometimes a bit too generous, and in the assessment of the man. Dahl was brusque, controlling, uncompromising, demanded and received attention, and could be charm itself when he wanted to, but arrogant and bullying when he didn't. But a biography that calls its subject by his first name will tend to skew friendly, and there's no harm in that. The contours of Dahl's strange and disaster-strewn life in which his children's writing career sometimes seems almost to have been an afterthought or an accident. He was well into his fifth decade before he published James and the Giant Peach in 1961, are zippily mapped. There's the death when Dahl was an infant of his older sister Astri, then of his father Harold a situation that left him the adored only boy in a family of women. His relationship with his Norwegian-born mother, Sophie Magdalene, was perhaps the most important in his psychological makeup. Apple, he was nicknamed. And they corresponded until she died. Their visits to his grandparents in rural Norway nourished his interior mythology and supplied him with the robust Norwegian grandmother in The Witches, published in 1983. Scattered usefully here are passing mentions of Dahl's formative reading. His mother exposed him to Norse myths and nursery rhymes, which enchanted his world. He suggested that exposure to nursery rhymes weaves a halo of romance around everyday objects, so the viewer sees, if not the skull beneath the skin, the mouse in the grandfather clock. By nine, he had Hilaire Belloc's blackly sadistic cautionary tales, to which his own work as a children's writer contained definite throwbacks, off by heart. He thought swallows and Amazons too soft, instead favoring imperial adventure stories. G.A. Henty, C.S. Forrester, Frederick Marriott, and ghost stories before moving on to Dickens and Shakespeare. As a young man, he read Ernest Hemingway, Graham Keene, Garen Blixen, and Damon Runyon, who came out in the twisty short stories that make up the first part of his broken-backed literary career. But it's the childhood reading that seems to be most important. In his Late Life, A Note on Writing Books for Children, as Dennison puts it, inventoried a child's requirements of fiction. He himself was the child reader he conjured. In Dahl's words, 
They love being spooked. They love suspense. They love action. They love ghosts. They love the finding of treasure. They love chocolates and toys and money. They love magic. From a cosseted home life in which he seems to have got away with pretty much anything he wanted, one vignette has him swaddling his sister in pillows and shooting at her with an air rifle, the roughness and rigmarole of school came as an unpleasant shock. He loathed the petty rules, the bullying and fagging, and the sadistic beatings, archetypes such as Matilda's trunchbull, leapt from his experience of Repton. Though, as ever, his self-mythologizing cast of mind and reluctance to truck in shades of gray meant his recollections painted the lily. In The Boy, he reported that the future Archbishop of Canterbury, Geoffrey Fisher, who had been headmaster of Repton, had given a savage and unwarranted thrashing to Dahl's best friend. Fisher had left the school by the time of the incident, and the boy in question had been sexually interfering with younger boys. What's telling is not quite that Dahl got it wrong, but that when the mistake was pointed out, he refused to revise the text. There followed his white mischief period, a drunken pre-war interlude in Tanganyika, working for Shell, in which he lived the tail end of the colonial high life. Then are the wartime experiences, first the much-mythologized crash landing of a plane in the desert in 1940. Though Dahl at various points claimed to have been shot down, it seems to have been a straightforward cock-up. He lost his bearings in a plane he was ill-trained to fly, bungled a forced landing, and was especially unlucky when it hit a rock. Another pilot came to his rescue, but that pilot appeared nowhere in Dahl's subsequent accounts of the incident. As Dennison puts it pertly, in one form or another, single-handed endeavor colored by brilliance or even glory was always his picture of himself. He recovered from that, at least enough to be returned to his unit. There was aerial combat over Piraeus and then Palestine in 1941. Dennison crediting him with five kills. Dahl remembered dogfighting as, in a way, the most exhilarating time I have ever had in my life. Pain from the injuries he sustained in his crash, though, stayed with him just as long. Dahl's sexual career in his single days was quite something. At 18, en route to an outdoorsy boys' camp in Newfoundland, he had an on-ship romance with an actress two years his senior. His early 20s saw a sequence of more or less furtive romantic and sexual entanglements, including with older married women, in that hotbed of extramarital shenanigans, Bexley. He really hit his stride during his years in Washington as an assistant air attaché to the embassy. I think he slept with everybody on the East and West Coast that had more than $50,000 a year, reported one contemporary. He had a fling with the film star Phyllis Brooks, may or may not have had a thing with Ginger Rogers, flirted with Marlene Dietrich, and dallied, or so Dennison implies, with the sexagenarian makeup guru Elizabeth Arden, the oil heiress Millicent Rogers, the gold mine heiress Evelyn Walsh McLean, and the married congresswoman Claire Booth Luce. Of the last, he reported to a friend, I am all fucked out. That goddamn woman has absolutely screwed me from one end of the room to the other for three goddamn nights. Odd, the streak of contempt or resentment there. He seems to have found seduction effortless. In a later short story Dennison quotes, he calls ridiculously easy, like manipulating puppets. But his relationship with Annabella, the actor-wife of the film star Tyrone Power, was one that survived as a friendship. He moaned to her about the state of his marriage in later years, because for all his sexual charisma, Roald was more practiced in the role of brother than lover.
That wasn't the only respect in which his time in the U.S. shaped and typified him. During his sojourn in the States, he had his first literary success with a whimsical 7,000-word story. He called it a sort of fairy tale about supernatural gremlins that sabotaged RAF planes. The young doll was courted by Walt Disney to turn it into a movie, but he behaved towards the mogul with the same arrogance and implacability that would characterize his dealings with agents, editors, and tax authorities through his career. The gremlins never got made, no matter. Dahl made himself comfortable among the moneyed and well-connected. He published stories in The New Yorker, cuckolded eminent citizens, dined with Roosevelt, and as if living in a fantasy of his own life, even did some espionage work on the side. When he was shown in confidence a draft document by the vice president, Henry Wallace, which suggested that the U.S. should encourage Britain's Pacific colonies to declare independence after the war, he sneaked it off, copied it, and caused it to reach the eyes, at least in his account, of Churchill. He returned from Washington with a film star wife, Patricia Neal. Theirs was a marriage that nearly didn't work. He wanted her to be the little wife and resented that she outshone and outearned him, and then did for 30 years, and finally didn't. He eventually abandoned her after an on-off affair with the younger Felicity Lissy Crossland, who was to become his second wife. Everything had to revolve around Rold, as it had in his childhood. As Denison observes, there are no happy and well-balanced, compassionate marriages in this fiction. Although Rold had been brought up with a strong sense of family, his exposure to successful marriage was negligible. That said, any relationship would have struggled in the face of their misfortunes. A traffic accident in 1960 nearly killed their four-month-old son, Theo. And measles claimed their seven-year-old daughter, Olivia, two years later. Neil was crippled by a cerebral aneurysm in 1965, and the Dahl children, especially Tessa, whom Dahl made cruelly complicit in his affair with Crossland, had more than their share of unhappiness. Here was a life of plane crashes, bunk-ups, red carpets, secret agenting, and amateur medical innovations. Dahl caused the Wade Dahl till valve to be designed so fluid could be drained safely from Theo's injuries. And Neil later credited his Martinet-like therapeutic efforts for her recovery from her brain injuries. Few writers except perhaps Hemingway, whom Dahl admired, incidentally, until he saw him administering hair tonic, have been such men of action. Even his early fad for photography, shared suggestively with Lewis Carroll, and later manias for gardening and picture framing, showed a cast of mind that was above all practical. He declared at Tessa's wedding that action is always better than words. Surprising apothem for a writer, Denison notes. And the books aren't just full of invention. They are full of inventions. Think of the ingenuity of the sleeping pill and Raisin Dodge and Danny, the champion of the world, 1975. The pragmatics of air travel and James and the Giant Peach. The machinery of Wonka's factory or the fabulously specific and hard to reproduce ingredients list for that marvelous medicine. The key to Dahl's success as a children's writer, Denison's account, makes it possible to suppose was his worldview. The idea that Dahl's work is virtually amoral, as Humphrey Carpenter put it in Secret Gardens, published in 1985, seems to me to get it quite wrong. Rather, Dahl and his work are animated by a fierce morality, but its one is black and white, and as capricious and sometimes self-serving as a child's. Whether you be a cane-wielding head teacher or a graceless, gum-chewing little girl, if you're a baddie, you are going to get what's coming to you, and the audience will do nothing but rejoice in the cruelty of your punishment. As he put it himself towards the end of his life, I'm afraid I like strong contrasts. I like villains to be terrible and good people to be very good. 
that made for a strong natural connection with young audiences who, rather than be preached to by improving literature or have their view of the world complicated by literary literature, enjoyed having their worldview affirmed with, I think it's the right phrase, extreme prejudice. Children are vengeful little brutes. It's a view of the world that might have come back to bite him. Writers of the past are finding themselves sorted ever more enthusiastically into goodies and baddies, and Dahl's hold on the first category is far from secure. Denison doesn't make especially heavy weather of Dahl's anti-Semitism. For all his denials, anti-Semitism did shape aspects of Rold's thinking, he concedes at the outset, and later regrets that the shadow of anti-Semitism would generate opprobrium. But the case for the prosecution is dutifully rehearsed. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason is the phrase that especially stings. Denison makes the traditional argument for separating the art from the artist. He quotes the critic Catherine Hughes, arraigning Dahl for grandiosity, dishonesty, and spite, and says that they play no part in the writing that constitutes his continuing claim to our attention. There, I wonder. As Matthew Denison amply shows, Dahl's work was intensely personal. Like many children's writers, he wrote for and from his child self. And the spite? Well, when it comes to Dahl, that's the good stuff. You have been listening to the TLS. This was Big Unfriendly Giant. Roll Dahl's Life of Plane Crashes, Bunk-Ups, Secret Agenting, and Children's Riding by Sam Leith from the issue of August 19th, 2022. It was read by Sam Scholl for Noah.